for one who's intent on following the Buddha's example in practicing developing the path leading to the end of suffering for penetration realization of the four noble truths the life of a bhikkhu is the most suitable lifestyle that will support that. The Vinaya training and the ways of practice of a Buddhist monk are all designed with the intention of helping us towards liberation. Where the Eightfold Path arises is in our minds, in our hearts. Obviously the same factors are developed whether one is a bhikkhu or a lay person. It doesn't change. The practices for lay people are still coming from the Buddhist teaching, Sila Samadhi Panya, just in the way as a bhikkhu's practice. It's coming from the enlightened mind of the Buddha. But naturally the lifestyle and responsibilities of a lay person perhaps put more burden on us for developing the power factors in daily life. The nature of this world is it's, it's a sensual realm. Our senses are being bombarded with information, different experiences. Particularly the lay life is full of that. The world is a very sticky place. A world of sensuality, just like a pot of honey and a fly lands on it and one leg at a time gradually gets stuck in it, bogged down. So the home life is very sticky. The monastic life is still sticky. We still have to deal with sensuality. But the Vinaya training and the system of training and practices are very conducive over time for helping to unstick the mind. There's a refinement that you can't find anywhere else in the, in the world in, that you can really compare with it. The way of the world is always tends to promote sensual attachment, material attachment. The way it is now, it's uh, you know, the capitalist system is basically the norm. Everybody is earning a living, making money, 
often we associate happiness with that in the world. The more money we have, the more we can do, the more we can have, the more freedom we have to do what we want, the less we have to endure discomfort and inconvenience. Even ideas of happiness now it's associated with different aspects of sensuality. We get products that will boost our happiness and we're bombarded with advertisements and promotion of different forms of happiness in a material form. We get products to help us look better. So we identify the way we look with happiness. If I can look thinner, I have more muscles. Dietary products, exercise regimes, health products. Other ideas of happiness based on popularity, being well known. So we have the rise of social media, ways of promoting one's own image to others. It's not only reinforcing our own sense of self in those in that social media and communication, but also reinforcing others as well. And so on. It's endless. So when we come into the monastery, you compare your background with that with the monastic life. People's first impression, or when they just hear what a monk, Buddhist monk does, sounds dull, boring, monotonous. Not what they would normally associate with happiness. And that's correct in a way, because we're not practicing for sensual happiness as a, as a goal, as an aim. The highest happiness in Buddhism the way the Buddha talked, it's peaceful mind, equanimity towards the five candors, towards the world, towards conditions, sankharas. Again, it's not really in line with the, the way the average person in the world will probably think. They think, Preserving a sense of personal identity and having a lot of interests and passions and attachments will probably lead to happiness. The monastic training is going in the other direction, letting go of attachments, letting go of this habit of identifying with the five candors as self. This leads to happiness through release, cessation of Craving and attachment leads to release and liberation. A lot of what we do is repetitive in the bhikkhu lifestyle. Repetitive but not necessarily boring or monotonous. The Buddha encouraged us to use repetition of skillful actions, skillful thinking, skillful speech as a way of training ourselves. 
in the monastic form <coughs> supports that. We, often we repeat good actions. Like say when you acquire a new robe, you bindu it, you mark it three times. Then you aditan it three times. You make a determination, and this is my sabong or chivara, whatever. We consciously repeat actions as a way of bringing out mindful awareness of what we're doing. We wear the same robes every day. So we look the same, but we become mindful of how we treat the robes, how we wear them. We have many rules guiding this. We have reflections that we repeatedly use, reflect on the impermanence of the, the robe and the one wearing it. The way the, the robe and the person wearing it come from elements, and these elements are impermanent, unclean, the way the robe them comes in contact with the body, it becomes dirty, ultimately subject to degeneration. Nothing lasts. We don't really own anything because nothing lasts, and so on. Just simply wearing a robe every day gives you a great opportunity to repeat an action, become more mindful and then develop more wisdom. In the way of the world, maybe you would see wearing the same clothes every day as almost like a weakness. If you go to work and you wear the same suit of clothes every day, people often they laugh at you or look down on you. The monastic training is working in a different way. It's geared to developing mindfulness in you know, this quality of paying attention to what we're doing, what the mind is involved with. So a lot of repetition is like that. It helps to repeat things, say things. You know, three times you aditana rogue, three times you take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. We chant our, the Padimokha every two weeks. We reveal our offenses, the apati, every two weeks. The beginning of Vasa, we determine to spend the rains in a certain place or a certain kuti. <coughs> we chant it three times. The end of Vasa, we chant the Purana three times, and so on. In many skillful practices we learn in the monastic training, and we tend to repeat them. Daily, weekly, yearly, and as we repeat them even just moment by moment, we often repeat them over and over again. We often chant the same chants regularly. We bow regularly and so on. A lot of repetition. So by the ways of the world, that sounds boring, monotonous. But one, for one developing mindfulness, you can see it's actually a, develops 
the power of mind, your one-pointedness. If you say something three times over, it really sinks in. It really makes you conscious and aware of what you're doing at that time. If you bow three times, usually by the third bow you've slowed down, you're aware of what you're doing. See, the way of lay people is often they just bow once and they sort of move their hands a little bit. The way of the world is we like to be fast and moving on to the next thing, so to slow down and bow three times is often seems just like an, a, an obstacle to what you're going to do next. It's not yet taking it as a mindful practice. So the flavor of the monastic training is like this often repeating activities over and over again. These are helping us to bring up effort, effort pointed to developing skillful states of mind, developing mindfulness. And mindfulness is like, Chinchas is like the salt in a curry. It's the one thing that you put in in every curry just to give a bit of flavour and it enhances the flavour of the other ingredients. It's the centre of our practice, developing right mindfulness. Right effort is, determined, is directed to developing right mindfulness with the consistency and continuity of right mindfulness then right samadhi can arise. But what makes right mindfulness right or correct is right view. Wisdom and understanding guiding the development of mindfulness. Mindfulness improves our understanding and so on. In the path factors they arise supporting each other. Again, Ajahn Chah said they're internal just taking on an external practice, you know, like sitting for many hours, walking for many hours, fasting, doing different ascetic practices and so on, are not yet a guarantee that the mind is actually developing the path factors. We could be sitting but just mentally proliferating all the time, imagining, distracted, or maybe just falling asleep. Developing these path factors this is something that's going on. It's not restricted to posture, time, place. So obviously if we're develop, cultivating this state of mind, you know, the mind where the path factors coalesce, we go beyond this basic delusion taking the five candors of self. It has to be there in the mind. It's all the path factors and the insight that it leads to has to be there in the mind at all times. Not just at, when we're sitting meditation, but at any time of day and night. In the mind of a sodapana, it doesn't degenerate anymore. The insight is established, the seal is established, the faith in the practice and the path of practice is established. 
kilesas that are still arising are known as kilesa. There's no more doubt or fuzziness. That experience is all the time. It's not just occasionally or once in a while. Until that point, then we'll tend to have an unevenness of practice, yeah, unevenness of effort, unevenness of faith. So sometimes we're willing to practice, sometimes we're not so willing. Sometimes we're committed to the practice, sometimes not. Sometimes we're clear in the mind, sometimes not. Sometimes we'll grasp and identify with dukkha, self. Me, mine, my dukkha. Sometimes we'll grasp at sukha, happiness. It's me, mine, myself. In the way of the unenlightened person is constantly grasping at sukha and dukkha. It takes us back to the stick, stickiness of the world. Generally we associate pleasant experiences with what we want, unpleasant ones with what we don't want. The unenlightened being doesn't see the craving underlying that. They're always moving towards pleasure and away from pain. They haven't yet developed the mindfulness or insight to go beyond that. That's why Ajahn Chah's teaching that not to take either pleasure or pain as self and as something important, so important in itself, this teaching. It's like a snake in the head of the snake that bites you is pain, the tail of the snake is pleasure. You grab the tail, it still come round and bite you eventually. Sukha and Dukkha. We, the mind of the practitioner is not going to take either. Rather put its trust and effort into developing mindfulness. Be mindful of sukha, mindful of dukkha, but not attaching or grasping to either. And this is the flavor of our monastic training. This is where the evenness of our experience comes from. And we can't control life enough to always guarantee pleasure. And by now we should be realizing that living in a monastery, we're experiencing the fruits of our karma every day. But we can develop the path so that we have enough mental resources, mindfulness and wisdom to deal with the ups and downs of our karmic or our resultant karma as it comes back to us. And these candors are the fruits of our they're the fruits of our karma. In the body we have it's come come about through karma. The pleasure and painful experiences we're experiencing have come about through karma where we're developing new karmas with the Sankara Kanda. What do we do with these Kandas? How do we treat them? How do we relate to them? And this is where we develop the path. The monastic training is geared to developing right effort um, many of the rules and practices we do there, the requirements, you know, we're a monk 24-7. We can't set aside the Vinaya when we feel like it. 
So it's bringing up right effort. The four right efforts, Samawayama, based on effort to prevent unwholesome, unskillful dhammas arising. So it's practice of restraint. You have effort to abandon those that have arisen. So abandonment. The effort to cultivate and develop wholesome, skillful dhammas. The effort to care for and look after those that have arisen. It's one way of looking at our, our practice through our day, through our monastic life. So are we practicing right effort or not? And basic practice of restraint is essential for a bhikkhu. The restraint of the sense doors, the six sense doors. Because we're receiving the fruits of our karma all the time, we see things, hear things, taste things, remember things, ideas pop up in the mind. How do we deal with them? How well do we deal with them? The basic practice is one of restraint to prevent unwholesome dhammas arising. So that means sometimes we have to work hard to not to dwell on things through our senses, not to look at something that will stir up lust or hatred, not to listen, not to taste, touch, smell, not to dwell on those thoughts, ideas, memories that bring up lust or hatred, practice restraint. We have to be careful what we do with our senses, how much sense contact we have. Again, if you're back in the world, say you live in a city or town or back at home, there's a lot more sense contact. It's more sticky. It's more provocative, more tempting. You have to work harder with the practice of restraint to avoid unwholesome mental states being stimulated by the sense contact. And when you use technology, computer, so easy for us to stimulate to be stimulating unwholesome states of mind. You travel, move around and so on. We practice restraint as a basic part of our lives. Sometimes we close our eyes, sometimes we cast our eyes downwards to avoid looking. Sometimes we move away from situations that are stirring up unwholesome states of mind. Sometimes we keep our mouth shut and we're tempted to speak in an unrestrained way and so on. In the practice of restraint, this is right effort, the effort to prevent unwholesome dhammas arising. If they've already arisen in the mind, then the Buddha was very clear. We have to be very sharp with our mindfulness and with our practice of abandonment. Not to dwell on unwholesome states of mind, not to delight in them, indulge in them, not to hold on to them. Use very sharp language, you know, cut 
cut off certain ways of thinking once they've come up, cut them off. Sometimes use the word, same word they use for execution. Execute your lustful thoughts. Execute your angry or hateful thoughts. You didn't beat about the bush if you read the suttas. If you live with Ajahn Chah, other teachers like that. Jamaabur, different teachers. No room for mucking about. You know, kilesa is a kilesa. If you've got kilesa in your mind, you cut it off, let it go, abandon it. This is as well, right thought. Thoughts of rooted in renunciation, non-ill will, non-hatred being sharp enough to see unwholesome dhammas that have arisen and abandon them quickly. And sometimes the mind doesn't want to abandon, it's only half committed to Nibbana, to realization. We sort of think it's a good idea, but when the test comes, you know, it's like, well, I'd rather carry on thinking this way, so we're indulging in a little bit of sensuality, sexual desire, desire for different objects of the senses and so on, often we're like, we don't really want to let it go, we're not yet really committed to Nibbana, we don't yet trust in the practice of renunciation and abandonment, maybe we doubt it or we're afraid sometimes. With ill will and hatred, same. Sometimes we're just not willing to give it up. We think we're right, we've got some reason that we, we're angry or upset. We'd rather stick with that than do what the Buddha told us to do and let it go. So abandonment vital practice to develop, put effort into abandonment, abandoning the coarse mental states so that we can have the insight and the clarity to abandon the more subtle mental states, the subtle attachments that are, might arise in the course of the practice. <clears throat> Sometimes in the beginning of the practice, a lot of our abandonment comes through just what you might call a weak practice of vipassana. You know, when you make weak tea, you put a tea bag in a cup of hot water just for a few moments, take it out and you get a little bit of taste. You know, when we begin the practice, we're, the practice of insight is often very weak. It's not well established, mindfulness is not strong, the mind is not calm yet but we can still reflect on the impermanence of our mental states. With a little bit of weak vipassana, you can still let go of things, abandon things. And we, again, with the practice, repetition of this practice in the monastic training, well, you get to know your own mind, you get to know the impermanence of different mental states. You start to see the suffering when you cling on to different desires, expectations, cling on to different moods. So you're more willing to let go. 
just let it drop, let it die. Sajjan Chow said, if it's not good, then let it die. If it doesn't die, it will make it good. Just let things die from your mind. You might have an unwholesome thought arise, but just let it die. It's impermanent. Don't hold on to it. Don't cling on to it. This is right effort. The effort to cultivate and develop the path, probably what we think about most in the path, practice of dana, sila, bhavana, Bhavana means development, cultivation, bringing up, bringing into existence what wasn't there before you bring up into existence. In bringing up generosity, bringing up sila, bringing up mindfulness, states of samadhi, cultivating the factors of jhana, bringing up insight, learning to investigate the truth, analyze the truth, look at it, clear seeing, so on. This is what we talk about or hear about most probably in the practice. But Again, it's an effort. It requires effort to develop something, bring up something that wasn't there before. Over the years you appreciate the value of Sangha, you're living with Sangha, you're constantly getting encouragement to bhavana, to cultivate the path, cultivate through keeping the vinaya, keeping the practice. The value of Sangha is you get good examples from others, you get reflections from others, admonitions from others, support in different ways, kalyanamitta. can be a valuable source of motivation and support because obviously we're not always strong in our effort. We're not always cultivating the path. Often we slip back, become dull, lazy, disillusioned and so on. So the value of Sangha around us can help. But obviously we also have to learn to motivate ourselves. It takes effort. It takes effort to practice generosity effort to keep the precepts when we're in different situations that tempt us to break the precepts. Not to be restrained, not to be mindful of speech, actions. Sometimes we're provoked, sometimes just our own attachments make us really want to break a precept through speech, through action. It takes effort, cultivate a love of the Vinaya, value the Vinaya. Again, the practice of repetition supports this. If you repeatedly do something, you gradually, if you're developing in some mindfulness and reflecting on it, then you'll start to appreciate how it's a skillful means. It's keeping you out of trouble, stopping you from making a lot of negative karma, keeping your mind free. You know, the happiness, the subtle happiness of a mind that's free from regret, remorse. Again, this is a long way away from the happiness of the world, just based on material success, popularity, 
pleasant experiences which may or may not come through a pure or virtuous way. And the way of the Vinaya is it brings you to a sense of purity and just basic being at ease with yourself because you're not harming others through body speech. That gives you the platform for developing the subtler effort of cultivating factors of jhana so you can overcome the hindrances and then insight into the three characteristics. Probably the hardest effort of all, even though it might not seem it at first, but the hardest effort of all is caring for the good dhammas, the wholesome dhammas you've developed and building on them. Ajahn Chah used to say it's one thing to develop some peace in your meditation, it's another to look after it. When you stop sitting, you walk away. Can you keep that state of mindfulness and sustain it? Most of us, we again, we experience this, have the experience of the ups and downs of practice. So you have a pleasing, calming, pleasant meditation one day and then the next it's all gone. Maybe within a few hours it's all gone, the mind is back to square one. And how many times have we experienced that? We gain some real calm and peace, I have some clear insight. And then in no time at all everything seems to have disappeared from the mind. The experience is gone. We seem to be back at square one. If we look carefully, we probably have to admit that we do it to ourselves. We have a good meditation and we want to talk about it. We have a good meditation and we feel tired, so we just sleep until the mind has lost everything. We often don't build on things. Then we have a good period of practice in the monastery and then we travel somewhere. After a while we realize it's all gone. Whatever calm and insight we had is all gone, back to square one again. And a lot of the time we have to rely on patience, all the four efforts, right efforts, supported by the practice of patience, endurance, through the ups and downs. If you've achieved some calm and steadiness of mind before, well you can do it again, but in between we have to be very patient. If you've kept the precepts before, you can keep them again. If you've let go of a hindrance before, you can let go of it again, but until you can do that, often we have to just endure. Everybody knows about Ajahn Chah's experience with lust when he was in the forest, there's that period where surrounded by Nimitas and images of female genitals and with tendency towards sexual proliferation day and night, all the time. And then when they asked him how did he deal with that, he said, mm, maybe nothing special, just had to learn to endure through it until it, the experience ceased. Achilles can come up very strongly out of the blue. 
You have to be ready with the practice of patience at every step of the way. That's why the Buddha said it's the most useful quality, the supreme destroyer of defilement, patience. And patience allows allows you to be if you're being patient you allow you allow yourself to have the time to keep practicing, keep summoning up fresh effort, new effort, not giving in, not giving up. You have to be patient towards the world, because the world, the way of the lay world, most people don't have a, much of a clue what we're doing or why, or don't see much purpose in it. So to be very patient to all the different views, even towards the Buddhist community, so many views and opinions about the practice, to be very patient. You have to be patient towards the Dhamma Vinaya, and the Buddha himself said, I'm not going to spoil you, monks. I'm going to keep nagging you and reminding you of what you've got to do. It's the nature of our commitment is we have to be willing to accept that. We have to be humble. Teachers will remind us of things, other monks remind us, or just the reflection on the Vinaya. We keep, we keep having to remind ourselves what to do, the rules to keep, what practices to do. Again, it's that repetition, keep applying the mind to the practice, keep remembering teachings that we've heard, bringing them up, reflecting on them. When the power factors do become a bit stronger, you still have to practice patience, but maybe on a slightly more refined level, patiently staying with a meditation object for longer periods of time patiently reflecting on the Dhamma, cultivating insight into the three characteristics. <coughs> Many teachers talk about how when you're contemplating the body with mindfulness and insight, you, it's like you're shredding the body or putting it through a, one of those old-fashioned mincers where you put meat into, into a tube and you turn the handle and it comes out as mince meat. So you patiently have to analyze this body to see it as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self, without an owner. You know, every aspect of the body, every part, every characteristic of it is an Ichidukha Anitta, but it's not enough just to believe that. And these are not theories that you just believe in and say, I know it's impermanent, I know it's not self. It's not good enough, just the intellectual knowledge. You have to really look and observe it over and over again. Again, repeated investigation and thorough investigation from the top of the head down to the tip of the toes, tip of the toes back to the top of the head. Teaching the mind to accept the, uh, the truth that this body is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. You don't own it. Own it. What you don't own, you have to let go of. Feelings and each dukkha anatta, you don't own them. Feelings are the result of karma. They come up and they pass away again. 
keep maintaining that insights to the point where it's, it's just so thoroughly known to the mind there's no doubt anymore whatever the feeling is whether it's pleasure or painful mm. not to get lost in it not to make a mountain out of a molehill and end up thinking and proliferating all around a certain feeling or experience that we have it's just that much feeling arises passes away pleasant things happen give pleasant feelings they arise they pass away unpleasant things happen it arises passes away what's left is the insight it's in each other. what's in each other is anatta it's not self you don't own something that's already gone If you repeatedly investigate the five candors, you're gradually building up this store of insight that doesn't leave the mind. It's there all the time. You know what it's like. You know the nature of these candors. If it's true for these candors, it's true for other people's candors. So the more you investigate and this sense of detached awareness arises, we apply, it applies to other people as well. So say somebody's got a different view, a different opinion than you, or it's just a different set of candors, a different sankara kanda expressing itself. It's still an Icha Dukkha Anatta. Some people you like, some people you don't like, some you agree with, some you don't agree with, but they're all just an Icha Dukkha Anatta. It doesn't change. Male, female, male, young, old, an Icha Dukkha Anatta. This, this is the nature of worldly existence, these candors arise and they pass away. That's what they do. That's their nature. So there's no need to make a big deal out of them. No need to think so much about them, personally identify with them so strongly. Your different feelings, emotions, thoughts, they're just that much. They arise, they pass away. So this whole lifestyle is supportive of developing this insight into the true nature of things, the reality. In the end you might not actually need to do a lot, go a lot of places, study with a lot of different teachers or anything much in particular other than just stick with the practice. however long it takes. Obviously as you're doing it you need to reflect on, use these guidelines, these kind of reflections, you know, is your mind more peaceful or less peaceful? Are wholesome dhammas arising or am I caught up into more unwholesome dhammas more often, more of the time? You know, it's a sign that maybe something's not quite right. If you just keep applying to the practice, over time it's going to gradually have its effect. It's a conditioning process still, we're still caught into the realm of conditions, but these are the wholesome conditions, the wholesome conditioning process, in cultivating the path, developing the path, looking after the path, looking after the mind.
So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs>